Hello and welcome to Nightlight. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Hebrews 11.1 1. Without faith it is impossible to please God. For whoever comes to God must believe that he is and that he is the rewarder of those who earnestly seek him. Hebrews 11.6 When the Son of Man comes... Will he find faith in the earth? Luke 18, verse 10. I can clearly remember in the very early days of the 1970s, sitting in a large meeting hall along with hundreds of other people, listening to a message on the meaning of faith. It was like nothing we had heard before, presenting faith as a force that had the power to move mountains. Now, We'd all heard that phrase used in sermons because it was Jesus himself who said, if you have faith as a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, be removed from here to there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible to you, Matthew 17, verse 20. The text usually used for that ongoing teaching on faith all during those years of the 70s was Mark 11, 22 and 23. Have the faith, have faith in God, or have the faith of God, or have the God kind of faith. For if you say to this mountain, be removed and cast into the sea, and shall not doubt in your heart, but shall believe the things that you say shall come to pass, you will have whatever you say. The version in uh, Luke 17 seems to put both these stories together with speaking to the fig tree instead of a mountain. But the principle is still fully there. Faith, the size of a mustard seed, if maintained in the heart and expressed out of the mouth, will produce the results sought for. It didn't take very long for this kind of teaching on what faith is and how it works to degenerate, unfortunately, into a kind of metaphysical cult-like thinking. Faith was a force in the invisible realm and it could be wielded like a personal weapon to produce desired results, obtaining all kinds of goals and possessions or fulfilling all kinds of demands. Some seemed to prosper with this formula while most folks seemed to not do so well. By the early 1980s, there were many shipwrecked lives. What went wrong? Where was the power to make things happen? Some turned away from faith altogether, or others turned to less dramatic, more intellectual pursuits of faith, deciding that maybe God was no longer doing miracles and settling back into a denominational system that had long taught the cessation of the miraculous, that faith now is an acceptance of biblical concepts. Faith was to be on the level of believing the right information. Though those who taught this brand of faith meant well, in order to teach that way, they had to ignore much of the scripture which the earlier faith movement had tried to reawaken us to. And it just seemed to polarize more and more. The name it and claim it faith movement, as it came to be called, went more one way. While the faith is mainly a set of doctrinal beliefs movement went more the other way. I'm oversimplifying, I know, and I I think any of us who were around in those days know that I'm pretty much accurate 
in the general way I'm describing this. Extremes on both ends produced either a self-centered demand that God perform on command or settled into a kind of powerless cultural Christianity that had a lot to say about doctrine and history and theology but had little impact on real life or culture. Though there were and are great exceptions of real power and truth on both the charismatic faith side and the traditional non-charismatic solo scriptura side, many Christians entered a long, hard period of spiritual drought. Neither metaphysical power nor mundane doctrinal belief systems gave any relief to the spiritual dryness as many trials and difficulties seemed to only weigh heavier and heavier, where was reality to be found? A rather strange little movie came out last year called Little Boy. It's the story of a young boy living in Northern California during World War II who comes to believe that he's been given the power to move things and develop control events. It's both comic and painful to watch him grit his teeth, grimace his face into a contorted mask of intense struggle as his outstretched hands tremble under the duress of trying to make his body become a conduit for this invisible force that was supposed to be moving through him, first to move a Coke bottle and later an entire mountain. It's a strange, weird, but kind of nice little film. But the main point here is that it exhibited the very kind of wrong-headed idea of what faith is that shipwrecked the faith of so many. In those early days of the 1970s, I had many mountains both inside me and around me that needed to be moved. The message of a metaphysical power being released to and through me was not only attractive to my young male ego, but a welcomed offer of potential real help. I took it all in as I would hear famous respected teachers explain things like, have faith in God, in the marginal reference should better be understood, have the God kind of faith. Then they would go on explaining that God himself operates under what they call the laws of faith. It didn't occur to me in my biblical ignorance to question that idea, which would imply that the almighty creator of heaven and earth operates under under another set of laws that are above him. I just took it all along with hundreds of other people that this was so, that having the God kind of faith was to be understood as moving in the same realm of higher power that God himself has learned to tap into, so to speak. It all had to do with believing the right things and saying the right things. So I set myself like the little boy in Little Boy. And I must have appeared to the Lord a lot like Little Boy did on the movie screen as I set my jaw and screwed up my face and gritted my teeth and clenched my fist commanding my mountain to move. I was focused, persistent, and convinced any time I was not Otherwise, lustful, depressed, and selfish. Because see, at 18, I was able to compartmentalize my spirituality and uh, ignore my fleshly departures from obedience and humility. 
and could move painfully easily from laughing at a dirty joke in the dorm to engaging in spiritual warfare, all in a matter of moments. One day a visiting minister from Scotland came to speak to our student body. I don't remember much of what he spoke from the pulpit, but I will never forget the word he spoke directly to me as he was about to leave the building. He pulled me aside and said, Son, you're full of promise and many gifts, but you are unstable. If you will give God your inconsistencies, there will be a great day ahead for you. Now, I know we Americans tend to grasp hold of anything with both hands when it comes through a British, Irish, or Scottish accent. But I would have never been able to forget those words he spoke and have never forgotten them for over 40 years, no matter what accent he spoke with. This was a time when grand prophetic words were being spoken over people, usually revealing great exploits that they were called to and my little ego was positioned to easily believe any such prophetic word given to me about my own great and high calling. I was expecting that. Instead, the true word of prophecy came. A word that was both charismatic and evangel- evangelically conservative. Gifts and callings are all well and good. But you, Clay, are unstable. Give me your inconsistencies, and eventually a great day is ahead. I didn't know it then, but that was exactly the same message through this Scottish prophet that Jesus had said to his disciples in Mark 11 and Luke 17, just different phrases. Have faith of a mustard seed. Believe in your heart and say with your mouth, and eventually... The mountain will move, the tree will uproot, and you will have what you say. Or in another place where Jesus says, Matthew 25, verse 23, You have been faithful with small things, I will make you ruler over larger things. Well, I had not yet been faithful in small things. Human energies and cultural happenstances had placed me far too early in a position of ruler over larger things, which I was neither worthy of or equal to. Jesus says in another place, Luke chapter 16, verse 10, whoever can be trusted with very little can be trusted with much, but whoever cannot be trusted with very little cannot be trusted with much. I don't say this to blame my teachers of those days because I was responsible to God for my own life, but It was an easy deception to take hold of a sort of faith teaching that made faith a servant of my own ego, while leaving me free to keep my own will and flesh for myself. I not only bought into it myself, but was sadly reinforced in this deception by watching the people around me who also were buying into it. Faith was either a power for my command or a a set of mere doctrinal beliefs that didn't require much of me personally. In either case, such faith left me in control of my own will and my own way, just so long as I maintained the right beliefs in certain concepts. Through many sad and probably unnecessary tragic debacles which injured myself and many other people, I came to the end of believing I was wielding any power. 
and I began to question the doctrinal formulas of my faith. And at moments of greatest sorrow and pain, when my own will and way was silenced in me, enough for the still small voice to get through to me, I would hear God with a Scottish accent say gently to me, give me your inconsistencies. Now, if you could walk through the land of Israel and happen upon a mustard tree, you would see tiny fruit on it about the size of an English pea. That's not a mustard seed. That's a mustard seed pod. To find a mustard seed, you have to break open the pod and inside you will find tiny seeds the size of salt or pepper. One of those tiny seeds, if planted in dry, fruitless ground, can take root and grow. And in its growing progress, it can eventually break through hard rock, burst through dry soil, move boulders, and I say again, eventually become a tree that's able to reproduce in its own kind. When Jesus tells us to have faith of a size of a grain of mustard seed, he's not talking about the size. In fact, he doesn't say the size of a mustard seed. That's not the main focus. He's making reference to the quality of the seed, not the size of the seed. He's talking about the function of the seed, It's action. For faith is not a noun. Faith is a verb. You do not so much have faith as you function in, move in, act in faith. As Mary often says, it's not having faith, it's faithing. Now that's not hard to grasp. If we stop loving, we have lost love. If we stop hoping, we have lost hope. If we stop faithing, we have lost faith. But in the unfortunate misunderstanding of language, we manage to turn faithing into a static concept of beliefs in a set of concepts. Now, that does not mean, of course, that it doesn't matter about the concepts. But in Hebrew, there is no concept of mere information as being the foundation of faith. It's easy to remember this because of a play on words in Hebrew. There In English, our word for data, D-A-T-A, it refers to facts, items of information. That's just the opposite of the Hebrew word da'at, D-A-A-T, not D-A-T-A, but D-A-A-T. Da'at is not gathering information. It's knowledge, intimate knowledge by union and is connected to the whole spectrum of love, trust, intimacy, and uh, relationship. The derivative then, therefore, of da'at, the result of intimate knowledge, is trust, love, steadfast loyalty, and the main focus of this present study, which is faithfulness. For the Hebraic concept of faith is far closer to faithfulness than it is to believing What you claim to believe in English can be, and sadly often has been, far removed from relationship with the living God and degenerates down to a mere list of concepts. It may be charismatic concepts of name it and claim it, an impersonal power you wield, 
or it may be much less exciting, the static list of doctrinal items we hold to as our creed. But in both extremes, the God kind of faith Jesus said we are to walk in is manifestly missing. It's not even considered because it's an unknown. I don't mean that there are not true believers on either side of this divide who have truly trusted Jesus for their salvation. That's not the point of this message. It's not... It's easy and foolish to set ourselves up in judgment of who is the Lord's and who is not. Let's let's leave that aside. My concern here is for the many of us who live in an ever-increasing pressure cooker of spiritual conflict with a sense of diminishing power, diminishing purpose, and lack of peace, resulting in weakness, aimlessness, and even growing fear. If we're suffering in this way, then there's obviously a vitally important element missing in our understanding of faith. So what is faith then? Listen to some of the statements Scripture makes about faith. Whatever is not of faith is sin. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. That word substance was one of the key words used in those early 70s teachings where faith was presented as a force. And I'm not saying there's no truth in that. We are usually far out of touch with the degree of energies and forces we wield and move in as spiritual beings made in the image and likeness of God. We're flippant with our words. We're flippant with our lives often because we don't take seriously the supernatural power we are responsible for. And that's why Jesus warns us in Matthew 12 that if we will, uh, we will have to give account to, to God on the day of judgment for every idle, useless word we speak. But if we think of faith as just that, some metaphysical force we wield, like Star Wars force, then we're, we're heading for trouble. The word in Greek for substance is hypostasis, and it means literally that which stands underneath to give support to, to provide substance to. And here's the one that grabbed me many years ago, to make steady. Remember the word to me back in those early days that about my inconsistencies was because I was unstable. I was not stable in my character. Oh, I was plenty stable in my beliefs. I could I could debate atheists. I could debate people of all sorts with informational accuracy. I just couldn't live life with any consistency that would bring glory to God or goodness to myself or consistent uh, uh, blessing to others. Hypostasis in Greek, the word for substance is that which gives meaning and reality to what I claim as faith. It may be a power, but it's far more important to be understood in, in this way relationally. Now the Greek word for faith is pistos, and it takes on many shades of reference, which we all would recognize. It's, be, it's believing, it's being trustworthy, it's related to knowledge and gathering of information, It's also related to character. All of this is valid in a certain context, but to understand the rock-bottom meaning of faith, that kind of faith that pleases God and without which we cannot please Him, we need to go to the first example in Scripture, 
which is not Greek, but Hebrew. The first use of the word that will eventually be the Hebrew word for faithfulness is found in Exodus chapter 17. Israel is coming through the land of the Amalekites who seek to destroy them. Moses stands on a mountain above the battle, and as long as his arms are raised in intercession, the battle goes Israel's way. But as soon as he begins to become weary and his arms begin to tire and falter, the battle goes badly for Israel. Aaron and Hur stand beside Moses and hold up his arms. And the text says they held his arms steady. The word there is imunah. This is the word that throughout the Hebrew Scriptures will be translated as faithfulness. To have faith is to stand up under to be steady, to remain faithful. Later, when the prophet Habakkuk says the phrase, which Paul then quotes in Romans, Martin Luther establishes the entire Reformation upon that phrase, the just shall live by faith. But the full Hebraic understanding is not just that the just shall live by faith in a set of beliefs, important as they always are. But those who are justified are those who live steady, consistent, obedient, step-by-step, day-by-day faithful lives, not living obedient in the sense of some legalism, but out of love, relationship, and truth. This was what the Holy Spirit was addressing in me when I was 18. It took many years for that truth to break through to me fully and Inconsistency after inconsistency brought sorrow after sorrow. I don't mean that if we're consistent we will never know sorrow, but it's a certain fact that the way of the transgressor is hard and that sin brings its own punishment. Sorrow in the heart of the consistently faithful follower of Jesus is usually sorrow shared in his sorrow. Sorrow over the brokenness of the world. Sorrow over brokenness in the church. Sorrow brought on by consistently inconsistent living, full of self, compromise, ungodly mixture, and willful disobedience is the sorrow of the world that brings death. The just shall live by their faithfulness. Have the God kind of faith, Jesus said in Mark 11, That doesn't mean we're invited to wield some supernatural power like the one God uses, as if God uses some outside force from uh, other than himself. No, having the God kind of faith means being faithful, like God is faithful. Faithful to God and faithful in interaction with others. How does God manifest his faithfulness to us? He's steady consistent, trustworthy, dependable, truthful. Well, we could go on and on, but the basic word that combines all of these is he is loving. We all know the verse and the song, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. See, his love is steadfast because he is steadfast. He's not moody, not subject to whims that will change his commitment to do good to you and for you. You might understandably say, but I'm not able to be like that. Add the word yet 
and then you'll be speaking truth. You and I are not fully able to be like that yet. It does not yet appear what we shall be, but we know when we see him, we shall be like him. The path of the just is like a shining light that shines brighter and brighter till it reaches perfect noonday. He who has begun a good work in us will finish it. He's the author and perfecter of our faith. If we know we cannot, and then we choose to begin to try, we will find that we then can do it. Whatever it is we are trying to do that he called us to do. Is it to forgive someone? Is it to turn away from a certain sinful habit or attitude? Is it to move into a new realm of work or giving to others? As we choose to obey, we are faithing. That is, we are beginning to prove the truth that the just shall live. Live has to do with an ongoing Live's not static. It's an ongoing unfolding. And we live by our faithfulness to him who is faithful to us. This begins to transcend the oppositions and struggles and battles around and in us. Grace energizes such faith as this. See, grace energizes the faith that is faithing. God responds to it because it's a declaration to him and to his and our enemies that we believe he is the truth, not the lying forces of darkness. He is in the right, not them. We overturn the accusations of the enemy that seek to dishonor God and slander God and destroy us. And by doing so, we align ourselves with the ultimate truth and goodness and reality that sustains the universe. 1 John 5, 4, this is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. This is why without such faith, it's impossible to please God. For denying such faith automatically aligns us with the lies of the enemy that is constantly being levied against God and everything good. There's no third choice. I either believe God is good and just and right and true Or I believe he's not, and that means I believe that the lie is the truth. How I behave is what I believe. Jesus said, if anyone chooses to do my will, then he will come to know what is true. John 7, verse 17. You can never know by gathering information, by stacking up data. You will never know by stacking. Stacking up information, you only come to know by da'at, intimate knowledge, not data. And that intimate knowledge comes by the grace of God moving upon a heart that has chosen, even in its weakness, its pain, or shame, to say, I believe God. I will do whatever he commands me to do. So what has he commanded you to do? If you take the time to read through the Gospels, you'll find approximately 50 things Jesus specifically commands us to do. I won't delineate them here. You know many of them already. But write them down. Start keeping a notebook. See if you're trying to do any of them. Now, it's a bit sadly humorous that many young men I've taught this truth to over the years get stunted right away because Among the first commands uh, commands of Jesus in Matthew is, 
If your hand offends you, cut it off. If your eye offends you, pluck it out. At a time when these guys are battling lust and self-gratification, here's the first command of Jesus to radically, even violently, and ruthlessly deal with the sin of the lust of the eyes and self-gratification of that lust. Now, I know that's a bit indelicate to mention, and I'm not trying to make this either humorous or ominous. I'm just trying to point out, because it's happened so often, and because it's a great example of how practical this choosing to do God's will in a purposeful way becomes once you willfully begin to choose it. I say here what I've said to those guys over the years. Don't treat this like a checklist that you must follow in order in order of its appearance in Scripture. Like, well, I got to number one and I can't even do it, so I just give up the whole thing. Or I get down to number four and I can't do it, so I give up the whole thing. Don't stack up data. Realize as you continue to seek to obey what he tells you that where you are able to move forward, you are progressing and and becoming more like Jesus. And where you are stuck, that's where you know you need to spend time with him, listening to him for more understanding and answers into how to move forward. You are increasing in intimacy with him all the way through that process. The fact simply is, if you choose to obey in this way, You cannot help but learn, grow, and be transformed more and more into his likeness. Now what else has he told you? Not just in scripture, but what has he told you in your heart? Have you done it? I finally wrote a letter yesterday to a man that I hurt many years ago. I'm about ten years late in obeying that command. I found excuses not to write the letter. I I don't have the right address. I don't know if he even would remember what I'm talking about. I keep forgetting, well, I awoke two days ago with the full awareness that this was no longer an option for me. I knew what I was to do. I could choose not to obey and find myself in an ever-increasing muddle that always comes when you don't obey. Or I could obey and grow in wisdom and grace, so I chose to obey. Obedience is love. Now and then I hear people respond to a message like this with some silly statement that they are not under the law. Well, first of all, anyone who thinks obeying the commands of Jesus is keeping the Mosaic law doesn't understand either law or love. Usually such a person is under some form of bondage, whether it's secret sin or some kind of weird religious scrupulosity of their own. But Jesus clarified the point in Luke 6, verse 46, when he just simply asked, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, but don't do what I say? And in John 14, 21, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Mother Mary wisely had the right answer when her friends at the wedding in Cana were upset over their lack of wine. And she simply said to them, Whatever he says to you, Do it. Well, that's great advice. You should take Mary's advice. Whatever Jesus says to you, do it. If you haven't done it, go do it now. I've noticed when I fail to obey a whisper from the Lord nowadays, I seem to encounter a much more obvious and swift degeneration of things than I used to. It happens faster. 
A few days ago, I was working on something, and I sensed the Lord directing me away from what I was working on to give my, my full attention to him. But like a teenager who didn't want to stop whatever he was doing to answer his parents' call, I said, okay, okay, I will, just a minute. The minute turned into 30 minutes. I missed the moment. And next thing I knew, my appointment arrived, people coming for prayer and counseling. And I was in the middle of an unnecessary confusion that the Lord would have given me the insight into if I had obeyed him and listened. Instead, it took twice longer and a lot more frustration because I did it my way. I I seem to be on a shorter leash than ever before. In the kingdom of God, we don't become independent as we grow. We become more dependent. We don't outgrow obedience. We grow more childlike. This kind of listening will become more vital for us than as we approach the days ahead. Will he find faith in the earth when he returns? In Luke chapter 17, Jesus talks in great detail about the events surrounding his return. Then in chapter 18, he tells the story, the parable of the unjust judge and the persistent widow. Like so many parables Jesus used, he paints a picture of an obviously non-Jewish bureaucrat, either Roman or maybe a Jew, but one on the take from the Romans, one who is not only a disgusting political traitor, but obviously out for himself and his own interests. Then Jesus juxtaposes him with the least and most powerless person in their society, a defenseless widow. He tells the story of how the widow knows there is no justice to be expected from this wicked judge and that she has no power to force his hand, but she simply doesn't give up. See, it's not her power, it's her steadiness. She just keeps coming and coming and coming until finally, out of sheer exhaustion, the unjust judge gives her what she demands. Then Jesus explains that if an unjust hireling of a false judge will eventually do what is right, even for wrong motives, and for the very least of society, a widow, how much more is it true that the just judge, the loving father, for his children's sake, will eventually do what is needed to be done and set right the things that are wrong at the end of the age. It won't happen quickly, but once it is set in motion, it will be swift, decisive, just, and perfect. One of the main points of this story that is often overlooked or misunderstood is that this woman was not meant to be a picture of the church in troubled times, banging on the gates of heaven, demanding a hearing. That's not the point here. Jesus is giving this story to illustrate the very opposite of that. If an unjust judge will be pressured into doing what's right, how much more can you depend on your father to eventually act swiftly on your behalf to put things right? But then Jesus adds that strange statement that is only found here in Luke 18. Some translators have been so put off by it that they sought ways to suggest that maybe those aren't Jesus' words, but a commentary inserted from somebody else of what Jesus had said. But the text doesn't seem to allow for that. 
Jesus ends this teaching by asking, but when the Son of Man comes at the close of the age, will he find faith in the earth? And since his point was the steady, consistent tenacity of this woman who is weak in the face of cruel odds and indifference of government and she was powerless in her own strength to do anything about it. Since his point was that, then what is he asking me and you in that statement? He's asking, are you going to be steady? Are you going to be consistent? Are you going to look at the odds against you and disregard them no matter how daunting they may seem? And are you going to stick with it even though it may take a long time before there's any evidence that your prayers are getting through. They are getting through. And I will act decisively when the time comes. But if I don't act immediately, there are reasons for that that you don't know. Will you steadily, faithfully trust me when you don't understand why those answers are delayed? Many commentators I've read after uh, this idea uh, about the end times uh, and this statement think that it's because, well, things are going to be terribly dangerous, evil, oppressive, when as they are now in so many places. They suggest Jesus is simply concerned that since it will be a long time before his return that people might become weary in well-doing or weary in battle, weary in the pressures of spiritual warfare. And all of that is understandably possible. We're told in many, many, many places in the New Testament to stay awake, not to let our hearts be overcome by the battle. First uh, Corinthians chapter 15, verse 58, be steadfast, immovable, <clears throat> always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is never useless or for no purpose. Galatians 6, 9, let us not lose heart and grow weary and faint in doing what's right. For in due time, at the appointed time, we shall reap if we don't give up. Second Corinthians 4, 1 Corinthians 4.1 Therefore, since we engage this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not get discouraged or fearful or become faint with weariness. Romans 2, verse 7 To those who by patient persistence and well-doing seek glory and honor, he will give eternal life. Hebrews 12 2 and 3. Look away from all that will distract unto Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith. Just think of him who endured from sinners such grievous opposition and bitter hostility against himself, so that you do not become weary and faint in your minds. Second Thessalonians 3, verse 12 and 13. And this one's especially important to me because it addresses the, the, the day-by-day mundaneness of most of our lives. It says, work in quietness and earn your own food and other necessities. Don't become weary or lose heart in doing what's right. See, notice the call here to live a simple, routine, humble life, which is steady, faithful, and that's very pleasing to God, where most of us have to live every day. But so many of us in this era that we live in, are pressured to feel like if we're not doing something big, then we're, we're not anything. We're not doing anything. 
See, well, it's not what's big or what's high profile. It's what is faithful in, in the small things as well as whatever large things may come. That's what matters. In Luke 21, verse 19, by your steadfastness and patience and endurance, you will maintain control over your soul, your emotions, and your mind. That's the amplified Luke 21, 19. Our brothers and sisters in the Middle East who are suffering the ultimate level of human pain because of their commitment to Christ refuse to bow to the Islamic evil that's seeking to destroy them. Mary and I listened last night to the report of an eyewitness American advisor who said when he was there among the Iraqi believers that with ISIS less than 20 miles away and approaching toward them, the Christians made sure that the cross was fully visible not only in their camp, but on every individual tent. So I wonder if it is persecution and its accompanying suffering that Jesus was referring to when he asked the question of if there would be real faith in the earth when he came. Because it seems like under real persecution, faith manifests itself even more. What if it's not the persecution that Jesus is concerned about, but the prosperity? In Luke 21, verses 34 through 36, Jesus says, Take heed to yourselves, Clay, and be on your guard, lest your heart become overburdened and depressed and weighed down, not with trouble or fear, but with giddiness and nausea from self-indulgence, drunkenness, and worldly worries pertaining to the cares of business and life, so that the day comes upon you suddenly like a trap, for it will come upon all who live upon the face of the entire earth. Keep awake then, and watch at all times, praying that you may have the full strength needed to escape all these things that will take place and to stand before the presence of the Son of Man. Now Paul tells us in Galatians that faith works by love. What does that mean? Faithfulness works by love. It's not so much about tenacity of will, though that may be involved a bit. It's not zeal for dogma that will sustain us and keep us moving forwards toward life, though Holding to what is true certainly is part of it. But in, in, in the midst of great trouble, it's love that energizes faith. Having the faith of God means being filled with the love of God. God's love for us. God's love manifested through us. I want you to notice how often in the, the Hebrew text, Love and faith are connected, but see, we don't catch it because it's not the word love. It's the word hesed, which I'll have more to say about in a minute. Love and faithfulness. Psalm 89, I will sing of the mercies and steadfast love of the Lord forever. With my mouth will I make known your faithfulness. Psalm 92, show your steadfast love in the morning and your faithfulness by night. Psalm 98, he has remembered his mercy and loving kindness, his truth and faithfulness towards us. And then Lamentations chapter 3, one that we all know because we sing it. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. 
His mercies never come to an end. Great is your faithfulness. So what do we see in this relationship between love and faith? We won't get the connection fully until we change our understanding of both words. Love is a word so overused in our language, as you know, that it's losing its meaning. The Hebrew word chesed is so rich with meaning that it is translated various ways, but they all mean what we used to mean when we used to use the word love in its proper context. Loving kindness, tender mercy, dependability in faithful relationship. Um, All this automatically then includes, of course, affection and tenderness. I make this observation because for obvious reasons, a lot of people don't sense any love or emotional nourishment if you make reference to God's covenant-keeping faithfulness, which is the technical meaning of the word chesed. Covenant-keeping faithfulness. That The word chesed is sometimes referred to as God's loyalty to his covenant promises. Because that's what it is. But that's not all that it is. Like the concrete in the swimming pool is concrete because that's what it is. But it can contain the water where all the fun and the feeling is. Without the rock, there's no fun. Because God is our rock, our unmoving, uh, faithful one who is good and true and loving then we also can depend on his affection and tenderness because he's the rock and we can love on on that level also but to many who hear faithfulness referred to primarily as covenantal that leaves them feeling cold kind of empty words like loyalty and references to keeping a covenant strike our ears with the idea of something legal. And anything with reference to legality is totally devoid of anything we identify as being remotely related to love. We may know in our hearts better than that, but in our core, our center, the part of us from where our true life comes and in which our true life flows, God's true life flows into us. We we don't relate to being loyal to a covenant agreement as an idea that inspires any hope for real love or life. To his covenant promises, uh, God's loyalty to his covenant promises means God is full of compassion, tender mercies, overflowing, giving of himself. And yes, in the totality of, of affectionate parental care, of closeness and protection uh, of a big brother, or in jealous, even passionate individual focus as a lover. All these images are used in Scripture to express God's heart towards us both corporately and as individuals. And where did that earthly vision of these relationships come from? If you long for the love of a parent, or the closeness and protection of a big brother, or the passion of a faithful and affectionate husband or wife, God is the creator of all those relationships and their various levels of affection and heart are the shadow of which he is the substance. If you had come from a bad background, bad parenting, or your older brother was a bully or a brat, 
or if you've had no fulfillment in marital or romantic relationships, you may be left feeling just as empty by the use of those images as someone who resents the legality of covenant loyalty. That phrase. If we will face our pain, stop ignoring it, and entrust in His Word and His love and His truth, begin to move into a much higher and stronger life because our faith has become no longer an abstract concept of things we believe, but we have taken that out of the abstract and brought it into the concrete reality of bringing things before him. You say, well, I've done it before. No, you didn't. I mean, forgive me. I know what you mean when you say you've done it before. You, 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 your faithfulness didn't persevere through what you thought was the failure of God to respond to you. I know what you mean when you say you've done it before. There's lots of things in my heart that I've brought before the Lord and I've left frustrated and feeling like he didn't listen. But beyond that feeling, see, I didn't let that feeling be the final definition of what's going on. I trust him. When I don't see everything, when do I ever see everything? When do you ever see everything? I, I, I trust his character when I can't see what he's doing. I trust his character. So then love becomes far more in that, that, at that moment than mere love, as we use the term. And faith becomes far more than just beliefs. Now when we read Paul's statement that faith works by love, we, we have a much greater understanding of it. It's faithfulness works because of his hesed, his faithful, covenant-keeping, loyal overflowing affection and goodness towards us. His all-encompassing love. As we grow in love, we will automatically then grow in faithfulness. And as we walk out our faithfulness in real actions day by day, our love grows. So let's drive this point home as we close. Chesed means everything you need, everything you will ever need, emotionally, physically, and spiritually, all your deepest longings, the calming of your worst fears, the the raising of your highest hopes and dreams, they're all met in your intimate union, your da'at, intimate knowledge with Him. And when you do not see any fulfillment of those deep longings, you call yourself up to that moment and you choose to believe his promise that this fulfillment that, that you still don't see is coming because he is faithful. Then every day, step by sometimes weary step through the good times and the bad when there seems to be nothing but day in, day out drudgery or there's no warmth or affection or there's opposition Whatever it may be, there's no bright shining light inside you that you can sense or see. You just keep walking with him, toward him. And as Mary says so often, if you fall on the way, make sure you fall towards Jesus. Underneath you are his everlasting arms. Above you are his protecting wings. As I've said previously, remember, it does not yet appear what you shall be. But we know when you see him, you shall be like him, for you will see him as he is. 
Till then, the path of the just is like a shining light that shines brighter and brighter until a perfect day. But sometimes on that path, as we have sung so many times, sometimes a shadow, dark and cold, lays like a mist across the road. But be encouraged by the sight where there's a shadow, there's a light. There is a road inside of you. Inside of me there is one too. No no stumbling pilgrim in the dark. The road to Zion's in our hearts. And so when you can't see the light, you still trust the one who speaks his word in the dark. And we can take hold of that and we can walk on. And that's what it means to, to walk in faith. You do have the power to choose. You do have the power to change your emotional atmosphere. How many times have I caught myself saying, yeah, I believe the words on the page. I believe they're for someone. But I have not been choosing to embrace them as being given directly to me, for me, in this present situation. The moment I realize that that that's what I've been doing, failing to do, a tremendous change takes place immediately. I go from data to da'at, from mere information to real, warm, heart-to-heart trust. You could probably tell the same kind of story yourself. And most of us will have to admit that it's in the not in the bright times. It's in the dark times when we really, really grow. That sounds like cliche until you really experience it, and then it's precious truth. It's it's when there is no manifest evidence that my faith is achieving its goal, that it is achieving its goal. Well, let's close with one wonderful scripture from Isaiah chapter 50, verse 10. Who fears the Lord and obeys his voice, even when walking in darkness and deep trouble with no shining splendor in his heart? Let him be confident and lean on me and be supported by me, for I am his God. Father, I lift up to you every man and woman, boy and girl that might be listening to this message right now. I pray, Father, that the power of your Spirit will take the words of this message and bring them into the core of us, beyond our believing system from the neck up, into the, the, the fountain from which we live, the, the center, the spring of living water that is in, in the center of us. And that we will begin to live out of that center, especially as we see this day approaching where all of the, the, the darkness of the earth seems to be taking on uh, greater platforms and, and uh, speaking more loudly. We know, Father, that that only means when such things are happening. You told us, look up. When you see these things happen, look up. Your redemption is drawing near. Father, we pray that in these days we will be faithful to you in the small things and not be seeking big things, but just be faithful with what's in front of us, knowing that somehow it will all work for our good and your glory. And if big things present themselves before us, either big good things or big bad things, We will simply walk on with the same faithfulness, steadiness, and stability that we've walked before you in every day. Like Daniel, who 
went and bowed and prayed to you three times a day, every day. And then when the day came when it was life and death and he was about to be martyred for his faithfulness, he still just did the same thing he always did. Help us be those people. Help me be that person. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. Thanks for being with me. God bless you all. Till next time.